Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Armies in other parts of the world have called on the U.S. Army and other armed forces for platforms and ordnance. This as the U.S. military ponders its own supplies, readiness, and the overriding question of the capacity and resilience of that defense industrial base, the DIB. For an update on what's going on at the Army Materiel Command, we turn to its Deputy Commander, Lieutenant General Chris Mohan. General Mohan, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. It's really good to be here today. And this whole DIB issue, you know, has arisen because of the difficulty, you know, on the Navy side of getting their ships built, but also on the supplies of the basic ordnance, the uh, howitzer shells and so forth, and the platforms to launch them. What does it look like from your point of view right now? I think we have to remember a couple things. One, you know, we are part of the global supply chain. It's very easy to start thinking that in terms of, well, we've got a military supply chain that just supplies military hardware, but that is not the case. The companies that supply us with castings and forgings, for example, are the same companies that supply John Deere, you know, International Harvester, and some of the bigger, you know, manufacturers, Caterpillar, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to be cognizant of the trends and some of the challenges that they have that will you know, have roll-down effects to us as well. The other piece that, uh, that we have to think through is how we clearly communicate our demands to industry. And I think we do a pretty good job of that using you know, what we call as our operational tempo, using the historical data that we have for our fleets. But then there's anomalies in the system. You know, an anomaly was COVID, where we had a, you know, a global shutdown in reality that caused the, you know, the bottlenecks that you saw sitting off the coast of the United States. They call us slowdowns in distribution around the uh, the globe and also here in the United States. We're a part of that, and so we were impacted by that. And then you have another spike in requirements, which was our support to our partners in the Ukraine. I know that's been a topic of big interest, and it put a significant amount of stress on our supply chain. And we are reacting and getting ahead of it. But it's been a challenge for us. In the case of something like casting shops make all different sizes and shapes of castings, when it comes to, say, something like a 155-millimeter shell there, that is a specific thing that lots of armies use. And so, therefore, you're competing not with the other needs in the United States for casting capacity, but for worldwide needs of that particular item. So I guess my question is, that is also supplied by the organic industrial base of the United States, but also foreign countries make the same compatible type of item, correct? Yeah, that is correct. And in some cases, it's a combination of both. So for some of our munitions rounds in particular, different companies make different components, and then they come to an industrial base OIB facility for the, uh, you know, the lap process, load assemble pack, which is the final process of putting the round together, testing it, packaging it, and then sending it out for distribution across the Army. It's a combination in a lot of cases. And by the way, what about small arms rounds? Is that the same situation or is that pretty good in terms of supply capacity right now? Yeah, so we've done very well with small arms ammunition based upon the longstanding relationship we have with a commercial vendor that operates Lake City Ammunition Plant. So that's been a longstanding organization that is very well suited to ramp up and ramp down from a production standpoint. Because in that situation, you compete with the consumer market, of all things. And I remember a couple of years ago, yeah, small arms rounds were like 80 cents a piece when people were used to 15 cents a piece. And it was, you know, a situation. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so the company that operates Lake City Force, they ramp up and ramp down production based upon the market. Uh, what our demands are, they come first. We're first in line. And then the residuals and other production, it goes to the uh, private market. And again, that's one that uh, we've done very well with in this past ramp up of not only increasing the number of units that we send to Europe in response to the Russian invasion, but also the amount of military material we have provided to our Ukrainian partners. And then there's another piece to it, Tom, that, that also is great news for our, our weapons and you know for the effectiveness of our weapons based upon what our partners and allies are seeing as the results that the Ukrainians have had using our weapon systems on the battlefield. We've seen a significant increase in demand in the defense industrial base for U.S. supplied weapons you know, through contracts. Uh, foreign military sales, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a good news story on one end. Uh, on the other end, you know, it's placing additional pressure on the uh, organic industrial base and the entire supply system. We're speaking with Lieutenant General Chris Mohan, Deputy Commander of the Army Materiel Command. And just switching gears here, you have two hats, actually, in your position. You're also Redstone Arsenal Senior Commander. That means there's a lot of real estate going on down there. What is the latest? Well, I will tell you that, you know, for background, this is the fourth time I've been a senior commander. And this by far is the most dynamic installation that I have been privileged to serve on because we are more than an Army post. We're very proud of us being a federal center of excellence. And if you look at the 45,000 people that work here, it is not just people who work for the Department of Defense. We are the lion's share. But we have a long, long history of working with NASA, and the Marshall Space Flight Center is a critical partner in what we do for our national defense. But also, we have a growing relationship and footprint of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We've long had the Department of Justice here with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which is you know part of the explosive ordnance disposal piece. All those guys get trained here. But then you put a significant training load from the FBI it's just going to continue to build out that federal center of excellence. And it's a huge win for us and the local community as well. It's very exciting. And tell us about the proliferated warfare space architecture. What is that and what's going on with it? The proliferated space warfare architecture. I would say that when you look at the folks that we have here from Space and Missile Defense Command, the Missile Defense Agency, and now, you know, MISIC has always been here. We have a significant number of partners who are deeply involved in not only ballistic missile defense, but also uh, development of offensive weapons. The RICTO, the Rapid Capabilities Technology Office, is leading the Army's effort to, uh, to field hypersonic weapons. So we are not just terrestrial anymore from an Army standpoint. We are extraterrestrial, if you want to use an ugly term. So it is not just ground-based aviation. It is all the way to space. And a significant portion of that research and development is happening in the the greater Tennessee Valley. Yeah, so that creates another kind of cross-bridge in the joint effort because there is a space command now. And so that's somewhat separate from the Air Force, not entirely. And I guess that must make for some complicated meeting setups. (laughs) Yeah. So yesterday I attended the change of command and retirement of a friend of mine, Dan Carpler, who uh, turned over Space and Missile Defense Command after four years in command. And it was the first time I've ever been to a change command that had two ceremonies. So he had the Army Chief of Staff. We had the Army Chief of Staff here who did the change of command for the Army component. 
SMDC. And then General Dickinson from Space Command was here, who did the change of command for the uh, JFCC, the Joint Force Ballistic Missile Defense, which is another element that is headquartered here. And so it was, again, the first time I've ever seen a dual change of command. That speaks to the complexity of some of the operations that are taking place here. Well, glad to hear that Dan Carbler finally got to retire. I guess some of these things were held up, you know, because of the uh, yeah. politics in Washington, because he's been on the show, too. And so we wish him well in yeah. retirement. But, oh, he's a wonderful human being. You bet. And getting back just to that supply chain issue, I guess my question is, how do the different components of the military talk to one another about it? I mean, is it a concerted effort? Because you're buying different things than the Air Force, which is buying different things than the Navy. But it all comes down to, as you point out, the energetics, the castings, the casings, the you know all the electronics that go into a lot of these things. So there's a common industrial base as you break it down from the finished product. Yeah, and within the munitions portfolio, we're exceedingly joint. Um, we have the Joint Munitions Command, which is one of our subordinates. Our ammunition depots, like the depot I commanded out in uh, Utah, we stored a significant portion of Marine Corps ammunition. We were doing work for Navy shipborne air defense systems. That's very, very joint. Within the repair parts and other consumables, uh, that's also very joint, but that is we all tie in and plug in and put our demands on the Defense Logistics Agency. And so uh, they provide a significant portion of our repair parts, for example, as they do for the, the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Air Force. So we talk to our sister services, but more so we talk to uh, the Defense Logistics Agency. You know, highlight the fact that we are a federal center of excellence here, and then the fact that while we see challenges in the supply chain and the pressure we are seeing in the supply chain, for example, we are doing more things with Bradley fighting vehicles right now than any time I've seen in my career. That is from a standpoint of how many units we have rotating into uh, Atlantic Resolve, CTC rotations. We are transitioning from A2s to A4s, so Red River Army Depot is running two shifts, for example, as we convert. And then we are cascading fleets of older Bradleys from one unit to another. And then, you know, we've got a significant number of Bradleys we provided to the Ukrainians, and uh, we continue to provide them repair parts and technical expertise as we go over the shoulder using telemaintenance, if you will, to support our partners and allies. Yeah, items are on the shelf until they're not, in other words. Exactly. And from that standpoint, we are moving out rapidly to start doing some additional additive manufacturing. So, for example, where we have stock out, you know, the manufacturer can't repair or can't replace and build new repair parts, control arms for suspension parts or whatever. Uh, We have engineers who have taken those and they're doing the analysis. If we have the tech data, we are taking the tech data and machining those around the the industrial base, uh, particularly Rock Island Arsenal. And if we don't have the tech data, we are reverse engineering them and then machining those. And that is an effort that is rapidly accelerating and one that uh, we're going to continue to pour resources in as we look at a potential conflict in the Pacific, for example. Look, it's easy, Tom, it's easy to get to Europe, to be totally honest. You know, we have a very robust distribution system. Europe's got lots of roads. You know, it's industrialized. Um, It's easy for us to do business. But when we think about island warfare in the Indo-Pacific, How are we going to shorten the supply lines? And we think a way to do that is through additive manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, whatever you want to call it. And so we're moving out on that right now. 
And so if you think about our ability to take the machinery and place some of the machinery forward, you look at the rapid advancement of just 3D printing. You know, when 3D printers first came around, I was a depot commander. When we bought our first one, I think it cost $25,000. Well, you could probably buy one that's just as capable right now for $300. And so we have 3D printers that are printing hard metal now. And so we've got to take advantage of that technology, use the lessons learned that we were getting off the battlefield in Ukraine to propel us forward, both in a ability to print and also the thought process and the process behind it. Two separate things intimately entwined, but two separate things that we have to attack both of them. Yeah, you answered one of my questions. You think of additive manufacturing generally as plastic, and people think of metalworking as subtractive. You know, you carve it away on a lathe and so forth. But there is additive metallic manufacturing then. Absolutely. And I think that we are on the leading edge of capability. The piece that we have to work through are the authorities, and that work is ongoing right now. So you say, well, what do you mean by authorities? So think about the intellectual property rights of a company that we have bought a piece of equipment from. You know, the intellectual property rights, in some cases, we didn't buy the IP, so we don't necessarily have the tech data. So we have to do negotiation with that, and that's taking place at the highest levels of our Department of Defense to work through that. Or think about the piece of kit that is obsolete, right? So the company that made, you know, this one little widget is now either out of the business and they don't work with DOD anymore, or they went out of business. And, you know, we had 50 of them on hand, and we've burned through those 50 because increased demand, and now what? That's where we're really focusing on, okay, how do we take one of those, reverse engineer it, prototype it, rapidly print it, test it, and then get it out to the field in a semi-temporary basis? You know, you assign a risk assessment to it, make sure commanders understand that uh, there could be potentially some limitations to these parts, And then at the same time, you've got the demand on the normal supply system that is going to get you the fully engineered part at some point. But what we're trying to do is generate the readiness that we're required for our operational commanders. We think this is something we're definitely going to have to really get right for the future battlefield, just based upon the speed, the dispersal that we think we're going to have. So we're going to be widely dispersed on the battlefield. The battlefield is going to be highly lethal. So if you don't continue to move, if you can be spotted, you can be killed. So that's going to demand us and require us to think differently about how we do precision sustainment. So we're not going to be able to have large stockpiles of parts. So we got to think through how we potentially reverse engineer, manufacture through new technology, 3D printing, advanced machining, and then do distribution from sanctuary. Uh, But we've got to get as close as we can to those points of distribution so that we can uh, impact the readiness and provide the readiness that our commanders demand. Sounds like in the case of a real situation where there's national security at stake, you would go ahead and make the parts you need wherever you might need to make them and worry about Mm -hmm. the courtroom battle over IP at some (laughs) other point. Well, you know, our soldiers have long proven that uh, when you give them a problem set, They're going to drive on solving that problem in order to generate that combat readiness that they demand. And so uh, we've just got to help them. And I agree with you that in times of national emergency, we've got to be willing to take those steps necessary to provide the necessary things to our partners and allies and our own forces. Lieutenant General Chris Mohan is Deputy Commander of the Army Materiel Command. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, You got it. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. 
and uh, have a great rest of your day. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Keep the Federal Drive in your supply chain. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across 
geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening 
two very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.